Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. It's November 8th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. One of the country's most recognisable scientists has taken her employer to court. Microbiologist Dr Susie Wiles alleges the University of Auckland did not take enough steps to protect her against vitriolic and often misogynistic abuse she suffered at the hands of the public. In 2020, Wiles became one of the key faces of pandemic communications, offering her expertise to the media to help the public better understand the crisis that was unfolding. But this came at a cost. Wiles was soon targeted by a venomous harassment campaign that saw personal details like her home address published online. The question now before the Employment Court is whether the university has done enough to ensure the safety of their employee. Today on the front page, NZ Herald legal columnist and host of the Chewing the Facts podcast, Sasha Borisenko, digs into the details of the case that has flung Wiles even further into the unforgiving gaze of public attention. Sasha, can you explain why top scientist Susie Wiles is taking the University of Auckland to court? Well, I think it's really, really interesting. It's quite unique insofar as Susie is taking on the University of Auckland, issuing a personal grievance relating to harms associated with her public commentary throughout COVID-19. And really what it's discussing at the heart of it is kind of the parameters of academic freedom. First, it has to be established whether her public commentary was a part of her job. And if so, what duties did or does the university have to protect employees from harm? Sasha, it is very rare to see a case like this go all the way to the employment court. Don't the parties involved generally want to settle out of court? Yes, that happens more often than not. Also, we wouldn't know because, of course, often when cases are settled, there'll be NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. So often we don't understand or have a full grasp of the scope or extent of the problem. So the fact that this has gone to court is really, really interesting. And it might be a game changer in terms of how we assess risk, how we assess health and safety, you know, what are employers' obligations, and also defining the remit and parameters of academic freedom. Exactly how much abuse did Wiles suffer in the context of communicating on COVID-19 and what is the nature of that abuse? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because just recently I watched the documentary directed by Gwen Isaac called Misinformation. And it's a really interesting insight into the scale of this abuse and, you know, that kind of floodgate of misinformation that grasped the world by storm with COVID-19. That really was the first time from what I've been able to see that New Zealand could be subject to that kind of thinking. Just seeing the hatred and horrible hostility, harassment online, whilst in an earlier determination showed that she was the subject of doxing, which means that people will put revealing details online of that could be their home address. And this case was like a photograph of where she lived. So the doco kind of revealed that police were involved. So it's really, really serious. Thank you for calling the Dr. Susie Wiles Complaint Service. This call may be recorded for quality assurance and training purposes. To help us assist you, please select from one of the following options. If you think Dr. 
Wiles has pink hair because she's an attention-seeking whore. Press 1. If you think Dr. Wiles is part of a global conspiracy trying to harm you with vaccines, press 2. I don't think that violence will necessarily be taken against me, but sometimes I feel unsafe for my mom. In March 2023, an international survey of scientists who have made media appearance to talk about COVID found more than a fifth had received threats of physical or sexual violence. I mean, you only have to go and look on Twitter to see the nature and hideousness of this onslaught of harassment. Every single profanity very much targeted towards Wiles's hair, her body size, undermining her credibility, her research, you name it. And when the case of the doxing, I, I mean, I can't speak for her, but I, I think, you know, if I put myself in her shoes, if I were to put myself out there trying to do something for the public interest or informing the public of things that they need to know, and then for someone to put my personal information online, where I live, my number, that puts my family at risk. That sense of violation would be next to none. Were there any incidents that saw the online abuse move into the real world? Was Wiles ever confronted in her workplace by the people making these statements online? Well, this will be revealed throughout this three-week hearing. Wiles's colleague who was party to the ERA complaints earlier on, but he is no longer at the university. I mean, he was confronted at his workplace. So of course, that's an issue as well. You've explained that this case largely comes down to academic freedom. What exactly is this? And what does it mean for the university as the employer in this case? So in 1997, the General Conference of UNESCO uh, released its recommendation concerning the status of higher education teaching personnel. And so essentially, it outlined the right to education, teaching and research can only be fully enjoyed in an atmosphere of academic freedom and autonomy for institutions or higher education. So essentially, it means that academics, in order to advance society, you have to have that freedom to question authority, to question the status quo, you know, and it's very closely linked with ideas around the fourth estate and, and journalism when you think about it. We saw that enshrined in the Education and Training Act in 2020, which says universities are required to accept a role as critic and conscience of society. So it's really defined as the freedom to question, like I said before, the status quo and put forward new ideas and opinions, irrespective of controversy or popularity. If you're enjoying this episode of The Front Page, make sure to follow this show in our suite of New Zealand Herald podcasts on iHeartRadio. When you look at academic freedom, what this boils down to is, was Susie Wiles acting within the context of academic freedom and making COVID-19 communications? And then was that part of her job? And I suppose these are the things that need to be proven in order for the employer to have a sense of responsibility. Because if it happens outside the context of her job, then the employer doesn't have the responsibility. Is that right? Well, that's where it gets really, really interesting. So in terms of academic freedom and it being tested in the courts, the leading case stems from Rigg versus University of Waikato in 1984, and that was really the leading case. 
So basically, it was a dismissal linked to an article in a student magazine where the academic essentially said that the university failed to oversee a laboratory and they claimed that this resulted in students possibly dying of cancer and that the uh, university concealed the matter to safeguard its reputation. Now, interestingly here, the case clarified that academics could criticise universities insofar as it had to be truthful, the actions had to be sincere and in good faith, and there had to be consideration for others. And if you look at all of the cases, the parameters are prescribing what academics can and can't do. But this isn't the case here. Say who public commentaries were dissing the university, that would be more in line with this case law. Instead, it's saying that this was really a part of her job. And we've seen the case, how it's unfolding, is that a lot of the public commentary that was conducted throughout COVID-19, I mean, she is an expert in this and she does this for a living, but it's fascinating to see that when she did complete these engagements with the media or whatnot or speaking engagements, the money was going, she claims, back into the lab, which might be illustrative of funding difficulties and various things. But nonetheless, is it part of work or is it not? And I think when we compare this to other cases, I mean, this is the fascinating tension. I mean, where does the responsibility lie if conduct is conducted after work? So there are definite grey areas in this case, and that's what makes the matter so difficult for the employment court. Well, academic freedom and the responsibilities and the protections, it's quite different to say other professions or workplace environments. But, you know, if you look at the Employment New Zealand website, there have been a lot of cases that try to define the parameters of what's considered at work or not work. And it's usually used to determine whether a dismissal was justified. So really, it's finding out whether the connections can be made between an employee's conduct outside of work and the job. So things to consider would be, could the business be damaged? Is the conduct compatible with the job? Was there an impact on other employees? And what were the factors undermining the necessary trust and confidence between the parties? Now, in these contexts, And similarly, in the case with the academic freedom context, it's almost used as a tool to define what employees can or can't do. So here, we've seen throughout the employment court or the case law when this can be used to dismiss people. So an employee's conduct outside of the workplace can give rise to disciplinary action in certain circumstances. People might remember the Hammond case where a person resigned from her job at New Zealand Credit Union Baywide and feeling as if she'd been constructively dismissed, she baked a cake with the words NZCU, F beep you and posted a picture on Facebook. Human Resources secured a copy of the image and distributed it to recruitment companies, advising them against assisting this person. Eventually, it was found that the employer was ordered to pay damages to the value of $170,000-odd and to apologize for the severe humiliation, severe loss of dignity, and severe injury to feelings. So you see these cases coming up a lot. Susie Wiles talked of her difficulty obtaining home security improvements through a university-approved supplier. Their key response was simply to urge Associate Professor Wiles and her colleagues to pull back from COVID-19 commentary. I've been performing its role as critic in conscience. As my employer, I honestly expected the university to have my back. 
given that the Wiles case comes down to whether she felt safe in the context of doing her job, surely WorkSafe should have been involved. So where was WorkSafe in all of this? So under the Health and Safety at Work Act, if an employee feels that their workplace hasn't met their obligations in terms of being a fair and reasonable employer or met their health and safety responsibilities, they could file a personal grievance claim. And that's exactly what we've seen here. So WorkSafe has the ability to prosecute if it's considered there's been a breach of statutory obligations. Um, Mental harm, it comes down again to whether this was a PCBU in the context of the Health and Safety at Work Act, which is a person conducting a business or undertaking which is quite broad. So the university is obviously a PCBU and it must look after the health and safety of its workers. Uh, So the primary duty of care means that a business has the primary responsibility for the health and safety of their workers so far as reasonably practicable. So essentially, it's did the university do enough? Often we'll see a lot of companies and HR aficionados the world over kind of paying lip service by, you know, being perceived to have done the right things at the time. But really the hearing will reveal whether things were done accordingly and to a reasonable standard. What could Wiles gain from this court case should it go her way? Well, I mean, it really could bring these issues to light. I mean, the universities across the country have been under a microscope with the likes of the strikes last year and and the use of precarious contracts. You've got the issue of academic freedom. What are the parameters of that? Also bringing to light the level of harassment and the lack of framework around dealing with things such as online abuse, Where are we in terms of hate speech? Is the new government going to look at these things in further detail? So it really could change the name of the game. And I think also, if it is found that the University of Auckland didn't fulfill their obligations or do enough to protect their employees, and so then that could have a huge flow-on effect for all businesses across the country. Should WorkSafe be given more resources to do more investigations? It's bringing all these things to light from patriarchal systems in terms of university machines, funding restraints and constraints. It's really, really fascinating. Sasha, now that the COVID restrictions are over, has the level of abuse aimed at people like Susie Wilde subsided or do you think it's here to stay for good? Well, I think when you saw how it was almost synthesized and now it's kind of this useful tool for the very fringes of society and now there's a collective. I mean, that's really, really worrying. And I think there's research coming out increasingly looking at the harms associated with misinformation and disinformation. You've got issues relating to distrust in the media. So we're in a really, really, really potentially dangerous place in terms of the structures around democracy and holding people to account. And I mean, online abuse, how do you crack down on this stuff? Where's the framework? But it's scary. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.